Desi. And I'm Raven. And you're listening to Dreaming in the Dark, the Black fantasy podcast of your dreams. Dreaming in the Dark is a podcast created by Black fantasy scholars Desi Johannes and Raven K. Stringfield, two Black girls with a love of magic that brings the stories we wished we'd had as children to the forefront. Named after visionary Toni Morrison's treasured critical analysis, Playing in the Dark, our podcast celebrates the creations that center those usually written in the margins of the fantastic. The aim of Dreaming in the Dark is to craft a place where we explore our visions for Black futures and freedoms and play in the worlds created by Black artists, scholars, and writers. On this episode of Dreaming in the Dark, we'll be talking to YA fantasy author Kaylin Bayron. Kaylin is the best-selling author of the award-winning YA fantasy Cinderella is Dead and This Poison Art. She is a classically trained vocalist, and when she's not writing, you can find her listening to Ella Fitzgerald on loop, attending the theater, watching scary movies, and spending time with her kids. She currently lives in San Antonio, Texas with her family. Welcome to Dreaming in the Dark, Kaylin. We're really excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh my goodness. Okay, to start off, <laughs> I'd love to talk about the legends and myths you've reworked in both Cinderella is Dead and now This Poison Heart. I've always been fascinated by the Cinderella mythos. We, Raven and I have talked on previous episodes of the show. I wrote my master's thesis on uh, how Black princesses from Tiana to Brandy to Gwen from Merlin BBC always seem to get pulled into a Cinderella adaptation or the rags to riches trope. What about the Cinderella story appealed to you for your debut? Um, and I'd love to talk more about then Greek mythology once we get to this poison heart. Yeah, so um, with Cinderella is Dead, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of fairy tales, um, just in general. Um, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. It was kind of that peak Disney princess time. Um, So they were just kind of everywhere. Um, And so I I think I had that in the back of my mind. I also had um, a collected uh, work of fairy tales. And they were, they were Cinderella, Snow White, Rapunzel, but they were different versions from like different cultures around the world. And I had that at a pretty young age. Um, so I also had that in the back of my mind. Um, I also had the, um, the kind of experience of not seeing a black princess until I was almost 30. Uh, that's when princess, that's when we got princess Tiana and she was a frog for 70% of the movie. Um, and so it, it felt, it felt kind of like we were getting a black princess, but not really like we were getting, we weren't getting all of it. We were getting a piece. Um, and so I kind of had all of that in, in my head when I sat down to write a fairy tale retelling, I knew I wanted to do a retelling. Um, and I picked Cinderella specifically because she is so visible. Um, her story gets reworked all the time. Um, and I really, I really just wanted to do that story because it felt like, it felt like there was an opportunity there for me to kind of take it and make it more accessible while also critiquing this, this element of storytelling that always kind of excludes queer people and black people. And so I wanted to do all of these things all at the same time. Uh, and Cinderella felt like a really kind of perfect vehicle to to do that. And a lot of times, you know, people go into Cinderella's Dead thinking that it's a Cinderella retelling, like a beat for beat retelling. 
Um, and it's not. Um, and I think most people are pleasantly surprised by that. But um, for me, it was just a question of, of taking this fairy tale and really making it um, more accessible, but also really looking at its flaws, like turning it inside out and really interrogating, um, you know, its use of this patriarchal society, these societal expectations, this heteronormative um, environment. I wanted to tackle all of that. Um, and so it, it really, it really turned into something that, that I became really passionate about. It wasn't just kind of like a, a fairy tale retelling. It was, you know, it really, um, it really spoke to all of the things that I wanted to challenge within that genre. That's amazing. And I love that you also brought up Tiana as the sort of um, a recent story in your mind that you were talking to or talking against, because I've definitely been wrestling with that idea of what, what are some of the recent princesses that we have gotten? You know, what are the limits of the visibility that we've gotten in that space? And I definitely yeah. think that Cinderella is dead absolutely pushed us towards what a fuller representation might look like in terms of actually deconstructing those tropes that are so endemic to Cinderella. So I definitely wanted to ask you then, ha having had that fairy tale um, deconstruction in Cinderella, what was then the turn to Greek mythology and this poison heart? Yeah, so, you know, um, this Poison Heart is a contemporary story, um, and Cinderella was more, it had more of a historical feel. Um, and so I'm a huge fan of Greek mythology. Like I, again, the movies, you know, Hercules, I wanted to be one of the muses. I, you know, so I had that. I, um, I am a huge fan of Madeline Miller. So, um, you know, the Song of Achilles, Cersei, like there, there are these references um, for me that, you know, I really, and I love, and I'm a huge fan of the Percy Jackson stories. Um, but, um, you know, here we are again with this kind of mythology that um, really excludes so many people and there's no reason for it to. Um, and because, it, you know, we're, we're talking about something that, um, that we can, where there was another opportunity, just like the Cinderella, to kind of reimagine it, kind of come into the story in a different way. So with this contemporary setting, I really wanted it to feel, I wanted it to have those magical elements. I wanted it to have that mythology. Um, but I wanted to, again, center a queer Black girl and her queer Black family and her queer Black community. I wanted to have this, this story that felt very fantastical and magical and had all of these elements, but, um, you know, but, but ultimately it's about, um, you know, this kind of family. And so um, the mythology was a great kind of tool to explore this theme of, you know, this generational trauma, this thing that we've, you know, we've inherited from our people and it's, we're kind of carrying this burden. And in this poison heart, it's a tangible object. Like it's a physical thing that they're doing, but it represents, um, something that I think a lot of us deal with, which is setting down the, the, that kind of trauma, like learning to process it and let it go and do things in a different way. And so the mythology for me was just a great link um, to be able to show how we're, you know, doing things the same over and over again for so long. And we're finally here and we have the weight of this legacy and we have the weight of what it has uh, provided us, but we also 
recognize that we can do things in a different way. And so the mythology for me there was just a really good, a good link to kind of be able to do that. And I love that. I mean, you know, Bezzy and I have talked about Percy Jackson a lot. And, and beyond that, like just Greek mythology in general. Um, so for me, actually, Medea is one of my favorite Greek characters. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's one of, it's definitely one of those things. Like if you know Greek mythology and you tell someone that Medea is one of your favorite characters, they immediately are like, all right. Are you, are you sure? Right. Um, very, yeah. Very similar to like Azula in Avatar The Last Airbender. I love Azula, you know, same, same sort of thing. And everyone's just like, that's really weird. And I'm kind of concerned for you, <laughs> but, um, you know, you talk also in, in this, in this conversation about this, about the parents, like this, this really great community that you've set it in. And so, you know, in particular, I'm always thinking about when I read fantasy, um, why don't your parents know what's going, like, why are you not telling your, pa your parents, why are they very confused at the end of the book when you've come back from a two week jaunt in the underworld or something, you know, like some right. thing. Um, <laughs> so can you talk about what it was like to, to write a YA fantasy where the parents are central and actually very beloved figures? Yeah. Yeah. So that, so I know that it's, so I love tropes and tropes are a method of storytelling. So I don't have, like, I have tropes that I love and I, and I realize how having the parents kind of be out of the picture serves a story. Sometimes that works. Um, and uh, so it's nothing against that. But for me, it was just, I was thinking like my, like my, when I was, you know, a teenager, like my parents, my dad specifically was so knee deep in my business. I could not have been the chosen one for any amount of time without him knowing about it and being like, what is going on? Um, so I wanted to work that into the story. And I wanted to also show that um, I think sometimes when we have these depictions of queer families, um, I, I, just, I just feel like sometimes we don't see them in all of their nuance. Sometimes it's, um, you know, it feels, um, it feels very kind of one-sided. I just wanted to show that queer families are just like anybody else's family. We obviously we have our, you know, our, our differences and, and there's a lot of nuance there, but you know, we can have these, these representations of queer black families um, that have parents who care about their kid and who, you know, want to make sure that they're kid has their phone charged and that they have their location turned on and that they, you know, Mo kind of getting Carter's license plate as he's pulled up in the driveway, like just kind of letting him know, like, I see you. And, you know, if anything, if my daughter's not back here on time, you know, I'm in the car and I'm looking for you. So it's just, you know, it's, it's just, for me, it was just a, a, a really nice thing to kind of have these parents be very present um, in Bree's life and in her kind of adventures. And, um, it, it provided a really kind of grounding element to this story that that has a lot of fantastical kind of magical things. Um, it it felt very very it felt nice to have it be grounded and have these parents like you have a curfew you're not doing that we're you know like they have rules and there's chores and you know just these kind of everyday kind of mundane things that feel 
they keep the story grounded. Um, but Mo and Mom are my favorite. They were my favorite characters to write. I love Brie, of course, she's the main character, but Mom and Mo, um, they're they're definitely they're they're special to me. Um, and as you know, the the queer parent of a queer kiddo, it really it was it was very personal for me to be able to to write them and have them be so involved. Um, and yeah, I just love them to death. Yes, I love that you included the parents in the story. Some of my favorite uh, black fairy tales slash like retellings in general have had, I'm realizing the parents present and um, holding the kids accountable in the story. Cause I'm thinking of A Blade So Black by Elle McKinney um, mm -hmm. and Darling by Kay Ancrum, who I just read and really enjoyed. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And I, yeah, and I just, I, I, I read, uh, obviously, I read a lot of YA, I read a lot of middle grade, and sometimes, you know, I'm reading a story, and I'm just like, there's no way, this isn't going to work, <laughs> that's not going to work if this is us, so yeah, um, it's, it's definitely one of those things where we, we deserve more, um, more stories that just show all the, the, the kind of amazing nuance that we have within our different communities, I think it's really, um, I think it's really important. You know, yeah, I and I love that. But I also, you know, the other thing I really appreciate about mom in particular is that mom is like, nah, about magic, right? Or like, or like, not even like, nah, but she's like, I'm very, um, I'm going to treat this very cautiously. I don't really like this. Um, so let's <laughs> not touch the like dead thing that's been here for, we don't know what this is don't touch this because that I mean that's very very much my mom where it's like yeah if I came home and I could had some sort of supernatural powers or something she would not think it was witchcraft but like if I got there and like started she oh I don't know about that I, I love yeah. you <laughs> but like I don't know about that <laughs> you know in addition to Bree's parents You've got this really interesting community aspect of this poison heart, which is really, you know, important to me because I'm learning a lot about abolition right now. And that seems to be one of the foundations of the book. Like it's it's very like you cannot have the story unfold the way that it does if Rhinebeck is not um, sort of invested in abolition, right? Right. So yeah where the story takes place, um, they've defunded the police and public safety, you know, when possible is handled by licensed social workers and community members. And so could you talk a little bit about like how abolition got into the story and how it becomes integral to imagining black fantasy? So when I, when I was drafting, um, there is, um, a scene in the book where someone kind of shows up to this, this new house that they've moved into and, um, they have a conversation, the family, mom, Mo and Brie have this conversation about, do we call the police? Do we even want to do that? Do we need to do that? Um, because they, we have this understanding of what that means when we call the police, we, you know, we understand where that can lead, where it often does lead. Um, even in situations that are not, um, that are not, um, uh, extremely dangerous. Maybe you're just calling to get kind of a check or do a wellness check or find out, you know, Hey, maybe somebody was out here. We just kind of want somebody to check it out. 
they have this conversation. And I realized um, when I was drafting that if they call the police, that I'm, I felt like there was an obligation on my part to really, um, to, to kind of explore how they feel about that and what that means to them and how they did things back home um, versus what they do when they're in Rhinebeck and they're in this predominantly white community um, that, um, you know, of Rhinebeck and what does that look like? But I just, I really felt like I had an opportunity there again, you know, just this opportunity to tell this story in a different way. And so I, um, I am, I am a, a, a supporter of, uh, police abolition. I really believe that that's something that we need to work towards. Um, and I, I felt like it was important to have it be already kind of, um, fully formed in this community. And so I, I thought about what that would look like and how that would work if somebody has a prowler or if somebody has a, a mental health emergency, how does that, you know, how does that, what does that look like? And so I worked that into the story as a, as a fact, like I just wanted it to be established in this world that it works like this and that it can work and that it has worked for this community. Um, I, I just, I feel sometimes like life sometimes can imitate fiction and, you know, we, we see that a lot. And so I just, I always feel like I'm doing my part to kind of speak to those issues when I write them into the story. And it's just a matter of fact that in this community, um, the, the people who are responsible for kind of dealing with um, things in the community are not always the police. And they are other kind of licensed professionals who know how to deal with people with mental health issues and know how to deal with, um, you know, families who have experienced trauma or, um, you know, just a, a myriad of things. Um, and so I just really wanted it to be there already fully formed, already in practice. Um, and it felt, it felt very, um, it felt a little scary to write it that way because I knew that people would kind of be like, well, wait, what? Like there's, how does that work? And why, you know, why? And, um, but for me, I think it works really well. And I think that it, um, that it just shows another, um, another way of doing things, which is what this entire story is about. It really is about looking at past patterns and things that you assume to be true and, kind of doing them in a different way, realizing that you can make a different choice and that you can change things and do things in a different way. So um, it's another kind of thread of that, that theme that's running through this story. And I, I really appreciate it. And I really like it. I think um, sort of the thing that comes to mind, I was reading, um, we do this till we free us by um, Mariana Cava. And I am making the connection, you know, as I was reading, thinking, you know, the way that she talks about abolition is very um, dependent on imagination. It's like very dependent on having a very critical imagination. It's a very active imagination and a belief that you can imagine something different, something, and you can build it. Like it is not just a thing that exists up here. And I, I personally am of the belief that if you can write something that moves us towards that vision, that is a part of the practice, right? Like part of the practice is documenting 
what we believe is possible, right? So like, I, I think that was A plus knocked out of the park, park loved it. And, <laughs> and that's the, the importance of fantasy. And for us, a lot of the reason why we started this podcast is that fantasy, particularly for marginalized people, particularly for black women and black people is imagining uh, realities, tropes, uh, concepts that we have been historically excluded from and unseen in. And that act of imagination is itself in many ways revolutionary. The idea of abolition existing in this reality would be called complete fantastical, you know, imaginings, if not for the actual work of activists um, that are bringing about that fantasy, you know, as it used in, when it is used in the most derogatory sense, fantasy into actual reality, into actual uh, communities and homes and spaces. And so for us talking about (laughs) fantasies that Black people imagine is imagining better futures for ourselves and for our kids and for our families and our communities, ways that Black authors are inspiring us to think through what it would take to make those things possible. You, you said that so beautifully. I, I really, um, you know, I think we get asked a lot of time in fantasy, like how, you know, how, how, how can you kind of take fantasy and use it as a vehicle for, um, for issues that maybe are more present in, um, in stories that are not fantasy. And I, I think that this is a really good example of that. It's, it's kind of like you were saying, I can, uh, in my mind, I can imagine a world where we get to exist um, and have our humanity respected um, at every turn. And um, I, I, it just feels, it feels so much like the, the power of storytelling and the power of, um, of seeing what's possible. It really, it really feels, um, it feels very special and it feels very, um, you know, like this is what, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and, and, and that element of this story really for me, putting it on the page is kind of like, I'm, I'm very big into like manifesting things. I'm very big into, you know, speaking it into existence, writing it down, um, you know, so be it, see to it. Like, I just, I really believe that. And so this is kind of my own way of, of, of contributing to that conversation. Um, because I, you know, there's, there's a lot of work being done by people much more qualified than me, um, in this arena. And I just, I I just feel like I just have to do my, my little part, (laughs) you know, whatever I can do to kind of, um, add to the conversation, um, because I hope maybe someone will pick up this book and have a conversation about that, kind of like we're doing now. So, I, you know, I, um, it's, it's hugely important. We appreciate you and all of the Black authors who are doing that work. That's something we, we obsess over as fangirls, we're obsessing over it as scholars, um, as podcasters, as reviewers. You know, these are things that, stories that we want to revisit and go over over and over again and to see more of. Um, and on that note, in terms of bringing those stories into a public space for consumers, publishing abolitionist fantasy featuring queer black girls in trade publishing as someone who works in publishing, I know is difficult to the least. How have you been able to advocate for yourself, your stories and your girls? What are some of the barriers a new writer might unknowingly face on the other end, trying to do this work, trying to enter into this space 
and what might you offer as pieces of advice for navigating those waters? I, I'm really lucky in that I have um, a very supportive uh, team and um, that that has been a um, really a lifesaver uh, for me um, to have uh, this team at Bloomsbury who really, um, they have not asked me to compromise. They have not, um, because it's not something I was interested in doing anyway, but they haven't asked me to. Um, and uh, I, I find something uh, very freeing, very powerful in that. I have these stories that, um, uh, you know, are they cover such a, a range of of storytelling kind of, you know, I have Cinderella's Dead, I have uh, This Poison Heart, and I have Middle Grade, and I love Paranormal, and I, I'm writing horror, and I'm, I'm doing all of these things, um, and I'm not being asked to to um, water anything down. I'm not being asked to um, to compromise in any way. And I find that, that um, that's very freeing. I know that is not always the case. And I know that that has not, um, that has not always been the case in the past. And it still today is not the case for a lot of people um, and uh, a lot of writers. And so um, I realized that I have some privilege there um, in, in the opportunities that I have, but, um, you know, for me, when it's just me and the story in the beginning, um, I had to kind of unlearn a lot of things myself. I found that I was watering myself down. I was kind of taking these stories and saying, okay, maybe I don't need to go all the way there, or maybe I need to kind of balance it with something else. That's me, my own internalized thing that's me reading for years and years and years stories where like black people didn't get to be on the page unless we were acting in a very certain way or having very specific traumas inflicted upon us um or if we were there for the betterment of the white main characters um that's how that's how we were shown in a lot of the the literature that I that I grew up reading um and so you know, I had to, I had to take a step back and say to myself, you know, it's okay for me to be unapologetically queer and black on the page with my characters. It's okay for me to do that. And that I think, you know, that takes work on, on, on my part. Um, and what it did for me is it allowed me to create a story that felt very, um, it felt very grounded. It felt authentic to the story that I was trying to tell. Um, and I think that that translated um, pretty well to my team and it, it just kind of clicked and I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna lie. Some of it is luck. Some of it is just, you know, I happen to have a great team, like, you know, and, and that, you know, I think there's something to be said for that, but I, um, I do realize how difficult it is. And I think that, um, I get emails and DMS all the time from people who don't like what I do. You know, we, we've, we've come a long way, but not, we have not come far enough and there's still a lot of work to do. And I think that we see those, um, the, 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 uh, uh, the diversity reports, you know, that come out, we see how there are more books about talking animals than there are about black children and we see that a lot of the stories that are written um, and feature us are not by us 
um, which is also a problem. Um, and, <clears throat> and I think that we also see, I think the issue, one of the other issues there is that we don't see that kind of inclusion um, in the publishing structure. We don't see queer black people at every single level of publishing and that needs to change because um, until we are involved at every level and, uh, and paid fairly in those positions, um, you know, we are not going to see all of the change that we need to see. Um, and so I, um, so yeah, there's a lot of work to be done and that can feel very um, discouraging to, to new writers who are coming onto the scene and saying, well, I have this story that is, you know, that's, that's queer and black and it's, you know, but I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I don't think people are going to let there. So first I'll just say that there are readers who want this, your stories. Um, they are out there. They want these stories and publishing has been teaching readers for a very long time that these stories don't exist. And it's not true. They do. Um, people are out here creating them. Publishing has this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where they don't, let's see. So like sometimes they'll acquire a book that's very inclusive, um, but it doesn't get the marketing support that it needs. It doesn't get the, the, the muscle behind the scenes. And so it doesn't do as well. And then publishing goes back and tells the author, well, see, it doesn't, it doesn't work and repeat until the end of time. Um, and so, you know, again, lots of work to do there, but um, I think that we are starting to see, not starting to see, the, the, the foundation for what is happening right now has been laid um, by the writers who have come before. And so we are now, I think, starting to see things open up a little bit more, but I'm, you know, how long, how long do we have to wait? You know, that's kind of the, that's the, the issue. We've been waiting long enough. Um, and so I would say to new writers um, who are telling these kinds of inclusive stories, your stories are needed. Your readers are out there. They're waiting for these stories. They want them. They want all the queer black fantasy, all the queer black sci-fi, They all of it. And um, there is a market for it and um, your, your work is, is needed. Um, and publishing is a, is, a, is a marathon. It is not a sprint. It is one of those things that feels very monotonous sometimes because you're constantly you know, producing work and you're getting rejected and you're querying and you're, you know, it can feel very daunting. Um, <laughs> but um, please don't give up because um, there was there were times where I wanted to completely just throw Cinderella's Dead in the trash and try something else or maybe stop writing altogether. Like, I didn't really know that's the kind of rejections I was getting is people were telling me, we do not want a story about a queer black girl um, as the main character. We don't want that. Um, and nobody's gonna want that. And I just, um, it was very discouraging, but, Cinderella is Dead is a bestseller. This Poison Heart is a bestseller. I have readers all over the world. It's been translated into multiple different languages. Cinderella's, Cinderella's Dead has been optioned for, um, for film. So I don't like, nobody could tell me nothing about like what's not there for, for, for stories like this. Um, I know it exists. I see it. 
and not to toot my own horn, but I just, you know, I just had to kind of say that. But I think more importantly, <laughs> more importantly, um, I get emails from readers on a weekly basis that tell me, you know, I saw myself in this story for the first time. I, I get these emails, these communications from readers and the power, that is the power of storytelling. And that is the most important thing to me as an author. Um, and if you can kind of keep that in the back of your head while you're writing these stories and knowing that, you know, your book could be the book that helps somebody through a difficult time. You know, I, I, I think that, um, I think that that is, that it's worth it. Absolutely amazing. Everything that you were saying, you know, as always on this podcast, we struggle because so much of our Raven and I are responding silently. We're just snapping over here, <laughs> hyping you up. Cinderella is dead is a bestseller. Yes. This Poison Heart is going to be a bestseller. Yes. We're going to see it on TV and adaptation. Yes. Like these are all yes. things that we're so excited for. Um, and we're absolutely going to lose our minds over as scholars, as fangirls, you know, as reviewers, et cetera. <laughs> And I wanted to go back to somewhat several amazing things you said, but one of the things that you brought up was that, you know, in writing your own stories, you were also dealing with sort of combating the internal voices that were saying, you know, water this down, people don't want it, people aren't ready for it. Um, and I think that that's such a, a key point that, you know, is constantly being talked about on Twitter. I think recently there was a thread going around about when was the first what you know race was the first characters that you wrote mm -hmm. and I was looking back at some of my old writing and I was like oh they were all white yeah oh <laughs> yeah. you know and sort of doing that work of unpacking why was I writing characters who didn't look like me why could I not visualize you know a character who embodied the fullness of my own identity and that kind of work of unpacking I hope is something that authors like you and Tracy Dion and Rosie Brown and the other authors we've been able to talk to and authors that we haven't yet read and we're excited to read are doing the work of intervening in for kids coming up to so they aren't going through that same sort of uh amorphous stumbling through a concept of how do you figure out what you look like what you will be represented as on the page when you don't see that in media that you are being exposed to at that formative time I, I did the same thing. So before Cinderella's Dead, I wrote um, like three or four other novels and they were predominantly, you know, uh, they had predominantly white characters in them because that's what I, that's what I was reading. That's what, you know, publishing kind of taught me that um, those were the kinds of stories that would be out there for me. Um, I don't, um, I don't think that I even saw like, a fully formed, fully realized, nuanced Black character in almost anything that I read until I was, um, until I read Beloved by Toni Morrison. Um, and um, probably at a much earlier age than I was ready to to read it at. But, you know, reading something when you're very young and then reading it again when you're older is an, is a transformative experience. Um, and that, that was one of the books that did that for me. But yeah, I, you know, just, I think about my own kids a lot and I think about what they um, have available to them right now. And it really just, um, you know, it, it makes my, it just, it makes me feel amazing because I didn't have that. 
And um, I'm just so happy to be able to have my work in conversation with other works by amazing authors like Tracy Dion, like L.L. McKinney, like Danielle Clayton, like Nick Stone, like Angie Thomas, like all these, you know, amazing writers. And I, um, yeah, it just, I, I'm really, I'm really um, happy that our young readers get to have um, so many different examples of what we look like, what we are, um, because Black people are not a monolith and queer people are not a monolith. And so having so many different representations is, is um, it's, it's going to be transformative for them. It is going to shape how they see themselves and their place in the world. And I just think that's so amazing. Yeah, and as a, you know, a writer who is aspiring to have my books on shelves one day, you know, this is great to hear you say, you know, there is an audience for it. And, but there also is like, in fact, you will encounter many people who will tell you that there is no audience for what you're writing when, mm -hmm. you know, and so, you know, and I also appreciate the, the, the point that you're making about getting out of your own way, like, right? Like that, that sort of getting out of this mindset of it's got to be this way to sell, because I think that's something that I struggle with. Um, you know, now I think I have similar struggles with my writing um, as what you've described in that. I'm thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to sell this, how can I make it more palatable when at the same time, why, why would I like, why, like, why would I do that? So, you know, it's, yeah. it's affirming and reassuring to hear that there, you know, even if white publishing, it wants to say that there is not to know in fact that there is. Yes, it is. It is a whole lie <laughs> that, <laughs> that there is not an audience or a market uh, for these stories. Yeah. Well, we have to wrap up. Unfortunately, we could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. We would love to do so, but uh, thank you so much for your time. And lastly, can you just tell our listeners where they can find you on social media, your websites, et cetera, anything that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, so thank you. First of all, thank you so much for having me. This is an amazing conversation. Um, I am on Twitter and Instagram at Kaylin Bayron. Um, my website, uh, kaylinbayron.com. You can find me there. And um, I'm on Twitter way too much. So you can definitely catch me there most of the time. And I'm, I'm trying to set my Instagram game up, but um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not doing too well there. So, but you can find me at both those places. All right. Well, thank you, Kaylin, again for your time. And thank you listeners for joining us this week on Dreaming in the Dark. We'll see you next time.